This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley's pasture-raised chicken sticks. I'm super excited to share Paleo Valley's brand new pasture-raised chicken sticks. These chicken sticks are made from 100% pasture-raised chicken and organic spices that are preserved using natural fermentation rather than preservatives. So yes, no fake stuff or additives here. These chicken sticks are sourced from regenerative family farms raised on American pastures and each stick is free of chemicals, antibiotics, pesticides, and added hormones. Paleo Valley's chicken sticks are a perfect snack packed with 7 grams of protein and frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.com slash nwj and use code nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks again for listening and supporting this podcast. If you've been struggling with yo-yo dieting for years or decades, or if you've been trying to eat perfect carnivore or all meat carnivore or keto, and every few weeks, then you start stumbling and then you fall and then you eat all of the regular standard American diet, and then you go through this shame cycle. Or if you just struggle with every night you're trying to eat clean, and then maybe you grab the glass of wine, and then you want the little bit of dark chocolate because a little bit of sugar isn't too bad. If these are things that you suffer with, then maybe there's something beyond diet that is your obstacle. In this conversation, we talk about what may be triggers and then what you can do to finally get off the hamster wheel or get off the yo-yo dieting cycle. It's a very difficult place to be. And I personally was in it for a couple decades. And I feel like for the most part, I'm free. I still think I'm in recovery because I should always be on the defense but it's something that you may want to consider. In this conversation, we talk about all of these topics and more to finally help you to stop yo-yo dieting and finally find food freedom. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me. My name is Judy Cho and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing. And that often starts with the carnivore cures, all meat elimination diet. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Maddie Lansdowne. He is a nutritionist and he has a fascinating story of his experience in the cancer hospitals and what made him question a lot of the treatments and then what made him move on from it and then end up becoming a nutritionist. And then even from there, pivoting to more mindset and habits. In our conversation, we talk a lot about how to finally heal that goes beyond just diet. If you're ready to just make change and you're just tired of the way that you live in these cyclical cycles of dieting and not dieting and then eating what you want and then not and then going through shame and feeling bad. If you're ready to just make that commitment and change, make sure to listen to this whole interview. Maddie has helped so many people, especially women, finally get the healing that they need, though it takes some hard work, but finally get them the healing that they need to live a life that they were meant to. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Maddie. I'm so glad to have you on my channel. For the people that may not know you, if you can introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. Thanks for inviting me here, Judy. I'm, I'm excited we finally found some time to catch up. But me, so I'm a scientist, a nutritionist, and an emotional eating coach. Um, I have a background working in a cancer hospital for many years and before that, nutritional epigenetics. Um, and then the programs that I run now as sort of off the back end of my podcast, which is called How to Not Get Sick and Die, I sort of focused on 
emotional eating, sugar addiction, and sort of the reasons why we don't stick to diets. That's so fascinating. So tell me about your old previous career with cancer and then nutrition. And obviously a lot of it's wrong, but if you can sort of dive into that. Yeah, happy to. Well, that was really the beginning of the journey into the holistic health world and becoming a nutritionist. And I didn't grow up in sort of a you know, a spiritual hippie family with natural medicine in any way. I, my mum was a nurse and it was sort of a very typical Australian family, which may be sort of typical American kind of family as well, or Canadian family when it comes to medicine, you know, and the way you think about medicine and healthcare. Um, and so for me, I just got a job at the hospital and I studied, you know, forensic science was my degree. So I worked as a molecular biologist in, in all of the different jobs that I worked in. And for me, it was just simple, simple logic, which was that why doesn't anybody get better? And I was just a young, naive scientist asking stupidly simple questions, which is just why do people not get better? Why do we predict that virtually 100% of people will, well, they'll either relapse or they'll die first? Like sort of the system is set up to, to just expect that people will be back. And 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 th the first real epiphany for me was that I was a part of mortality and morbidity meetings every single Monday. And after the first six months, I had noticed that nobody had ever been pronounced dead from cancer. And that was the first little thing that I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. I work in a cancer hospital. <laughs> uh, you know, why isn't anyone dying from cancer? And, and a lot of the time, people in those settings, technically on the, uh, on the death certificate, they die from pharmaceutical toxicity of a particular organ. And so, so basically, the simple way to say that is like the chemo kills your liver and you die or the radiation kills your brain and you die. Or there's another group of people which die from, you know, getting the common cold because they're so immunosuppressed. Now, that's not saying that cancer is not bad and that it's not going to kill you if you don't treat it or anything like that. But it was just interesting to me that most people died of the medicine, of the cure rather than the actual disease itself. And so that was the beginning of me being like, that's really weird. And so I just kind of organically went on my own journey of trying to learn about the cancer industry and the cancer business. And it was just pure curiosity. I didn't have a bias in any direction. And that led me down the rabbit hole of discovering the Rockefeller family and the foundations of the pharmaceutical companies and the monetization of cancer and the monetization of many diseases over the last sort of sort of 70 years. It's about the last 100 years, but it really kicked off in the 40s and 50s of sort of planning that out. And I understand that to many people, this is like eye-rolling conspiracy stuff. Like, <laughs> I totally get that because once upon a time, I was... I was there with you. Um, I was literally working in the industry being like, naturopaths don't work. Chinese medicine doesn't work. It's all voodoo nonsense. Like I, I used to be that person. And now I run a podcast and I advocate for that stuff all the time. And so, so yeah, that just led me down the path of discovering people all over the world and doctors and scientists similar to myself, although I was very you know young and early on in my career and very low in the hierarchy of the hospital. But that had left hospitals and that were operating their businesses from, say, Mexico or Bali or Vietnam in these countries that didn't have much regulation around medicine and holistic health practices, whereas your big European countries, Australia, the USA, Canada, they have really, really strict laws on what you can do holistically. And you can even go to jail in some places as a medical doctor if you don't treat cancer with radiation, chemotherapy or surgery. If you don't go for one of those, you can be penalized really harshly. And so, there was many of these doctors and scientists that had left the Western world, let's say, and gone into these sort of unregulated countries and were actually helping people heal incurable diseases. And that's what led to the podcast creation was that I got so passionate. I was in this weird double life of during the day I was working at the hospital 
And at night, I was running lectures on how there's 6,000 turmeric studies that, that are vers- where it versus chemotherapy and performs better or that, you know, ginger does the same thing in a clinical setting. And, and so I was living this like hippie at nighttime, hippie nutritionist at nighttime and like mainstream scientist during the day. And so, yeah, I started the, the podcast, How to Not Get Sick and Die, because it became super simple in my mind that that goal was very achievable with good nutrition, good lifestyle. And then on that journey and sort of going into clinic every day and noticing that everybody was overweight and speaking to so many people, I also realized everybody knows what to eat. I've never met anybody that didn't say meat and vegetables was good. Like everybody knows I've spoken to lots of different socioeconomic brackets in different countries and everyone knows. Everyone also knows in every class of society that chocolate for breakfast is not a great idea. And so that led me to realize you know, I've done this whole nutrition thing and food as medicine, but everybody seems to already know the answer. Generally speaking, obviously, you know, there's specific diets, but I'm like, the question is then why don't they do it? And that's what developed into my, what I do now, which is emotional eating, behavior change around health, relationship with self, self self-worth, all of that kind of stuff. Because being healthy is a sign of self-love, self-respect. And if we're not willing to do that, there's some deeper work that needs to be done, especially if we already know the answer. No, I love it. So I'm going to get to the emotional and the habits because that stuff is what totally drives our practice more now than ever, because right. It's not the education itself that heals people, but let me, let me stay on the cancer stuff really quick. So I found it so fascinating because I'm not as knowledgeable in the cancer space. We have some clients, but it's more of the nutritional aspect. They normally have an oncologist, but I interviewed with Dr. Thomas Seafried and he had mentioned that when headlines say there was a cancer complication. It's normally that they died from the actual therapy. So the radiation as you mentioned, and then I think about some of our clients that go to Mexico for cancer treatment. And so what you just shared makes so much sense in making the whole story of the cancer picture. And so I want to ask you something kind of controversial. If somebody, whether it's you or somebody in your family was diagnosed with cancer, what would you do then? Knowing everything. Yeah, I get asked that question. Do you? Okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah, because people people want to know, well, what would you do then if you know both sides of the story? So I think there's one thing that is everybody can agree on, which is that less tumor burden, so the less tumor you have in your body, is a good thing. So I think surgery and removal of tumors is helpful. I mean, it depends who you talk to, but lowering the burden on the body, on the, the immune system is probably going to be a good idea. For the most part, I would do everything that I could to avoid chemo and radiation. Does that mean I would avoid it entirely? Maybe not. However, I would be probably ringing Dr. Nasha Winters, who is a friend of mine, been on the podcast a bunch of times. Um, you know, she's building a, hos- a regenerative farming hospital in the oh. USA, which is just wild. And and yet going through the n- naturopathy, energy healing, me- meditation, stress management, I would be doing... 90% of it would be holistic health, wellness, you know, which, which is a space that is full of actual doctors and actual scientists, not just people that healed something one time and now they think they're a health coach, you know? And, and, and then I would also, I guess the good thing about Western medicine is that it's ability to collect data. So, you know, you go in for a test and you come out with all of this information. So I would still have my finger in that pie for sure, if only for diagnosis and data collection. Um, but yeah, I would. I would always start with any healing, actually, whether it be the basic cold all the way through to cancer or Alzheimer's or something like that. I would absolutely be headfirst into food as nutrition, mindset, you know, 
my living situation, getting closer to the earth, moving into the trees, all of that kind of stuff before I would be going straight headfirst into the chemotherapy. And there's plenty of studies that show that when you introduce in a cancer setting, whether it be intermittent fasting, whether it be water fasting, whether it be turkey tail mushrooms, um, there's a there's a heap of foods and, and different lifestyle things you can do around diet, which lower the amount of chemotherapy that you need to be effective. And so why wouldn't you want to do that? Because chemotherapy is a toxin. It's a deadly toxin, which doesn't mean that we don't need it. It just your liver processes it as if it's a really dangerous substance, which it is. So if we can lower that toxic burden, then we absolutely should. Yeah, I was talking to a client of mine, which their family was going through chemotherapy, and they struggled with, I know that a lot of the advocates in the space, which would include people like us that say you should go low carb because glucose feeds cancer. Yeah. But then they said, but when real life gets or happens, you just want them to eat whatever they can stomach. And so that's when they started struggling with, well, I know that sugar feeds the cancer, but they can't eat anything. So whatever they can stomach. So how do we balance that? Let's say someone is going through chemo, you know, if we're just trying to get any type of nutrition and I just haven't personally been in that scenario. So I can't speak to that that well. Yeah, it's a great question because one of the frustrations that I developed before I sort of went out on my own in this space was that I would regularly argue with the dietitians on the ward because in a hospital setting, and I'm generalizing, but the main goal is in a chronic disease setting is that we, like especially cancer, is that we need energy into the person. So we just need calories, doesn't matter where they come from, because the treatment is so energy taxing that it, we just need as many calories as we can get into this person. So we've got McDonald's, we've got ice cream, We've got pizzas, you know, we've got all of this super high energy stuff going into people because the, the dietitians are giving the advice and they're trained this way and they're, you know, regulated this way. So they've got to do what they've got to do. But is that, yeah, we just need calories to survive the treatment. And my argument is, and the, the thing that I would annoyingly always bring up is that the liver, it only interprets molecules in two ways. One, a toxin or one, a nutrient. It doesn't say, well, you've got cancer, so we'll process this pizza as nutrition. Like, it only adds to toxic load. So, if you've got loads of drugs and you don't just get chemotherapy, there's loads of side effects from cancer treatment and then you're on a, you know, a barrage of medication. So, you've got all sorts of toxins coming in from that. If you just add toxins from a diet perspective as well, you're just overloading your liver far more than it needs to be. Um, And so, I really think that, totally agree, the sugar thing is really important in a cancer setting because, yeah, cancer cells love their sugar far more than, you know, any other situation. And that's how they literally test for cancer if, is, is they do a scan and they get you to take some radioactively labeled glucose water and it goes straight to the cancer cells because the cancer cells pick it up first and then you can see it on a PET scan. Um, so, we, we everybody knows, you know, it's like the first step of your cancer journey is drink sugar so we can find your cancer. And so, we I think low-carb diet definitely, but generally speaking, anything that looks like it came from a farm Whole real food is is so important and clean whole real food because that stuff's got pesticides on it too. So we want organic, biodynamic, regenerative, but starting there with just whole real food. And sure, you know, we, we can have the argument about getting whatever they can stomach and you've got to meet people where they're at. Maybe pizza is all they can eat. So you start there. It's like a 14-year-old with an eating disorder. Right. It's not about getting vegetables into them. It's about, hey, this person actually does just need energy or they'll starve to death. Um, but if we actually got someone that's sort of able to make some choices, I would always steer clear of anything in a bag, a box or a can because you're adding toxic load to the liver. So then in the cancer space, do the dietitians at all recommend? Well, we know that 
the glucose testing we in the PET scan, we know that cancer loves glucose, but do they ever say that maybe you should reduce your glucose load at all? I mean, I'm not I'm not in front of those conversations one to one. So so I'm sure that plenty of them do and, and I'm sure there's plenty of doctors. I mean, that's one of the things about Instagram and the internet is that so many medical doctors and nurses and scientists like myself have access to like maybe the training at university wasn't a hundred percent right. So I'm sure there's lots of people doing doing that out there as well as sort of towing the line where they have to to keep their job. Um, I hope that there is. Okay, fair enough. So let's talk about what you do now. So I know that you have studied nutrition, but you quickly realize because it is true. I mean, the average person knows that eating at McDonald's every day or Pizza Hut or all the fast food chains is not ideal. You can argue the meat, the the carbs, but generally speaking, we know that a Twinkie is not ideal to eat. I don't know if you have Twinkies in Australia, but it's a- We do. Okay, okay. okay. I'm sure they do, but, but people still eat it. So obviously it's something beyond that. I know that I just need to learn to not eat this and then eat that instead. And so tell me a little bit about how do you motivate people? What is it that you try to spark people to start changing? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah, so I think there's a there's a few different categories of people that have different experiences with food. There's some people that can be you can be really prescriptive with, which is eat this and they just go and do it and they're not emotionally attached to their food in any other way. And that's a group of people that I don't understand in any way. Because <laughs> it's like maybe your bodybuilders who have just got one focus and it's like, I'll do whatever it takes kind of people. And I think it's fantastic. I wish I was more like that. But but I think the way that our world has been set up with convenience culture and that developing a lot over the last hundred years and the ability to have dopamine experiences and dopamine is your happy hormone, your pleasure hormone. Um, and we're always, you know, that's always been a part of the human experience is seeking that and we get it from eating, we get it from procreating, we get it from good things. And now we're in a world where we can get that dopamine from, you know, at 3am on a Tuesday at a milk bar or a 7-Eleven down the road. Whereas once upon a time, you used to have to really put in a lot of work to get your dopamine. And so in a world where people are, you know, work's stressful, the kids are annoying and there's financial problems, we want to counteract all of the stress, all the cortisol and the adrenaline with dopamine. So a pleasure experience that feels good. And so with food manufacturers and the government making unhealthy food so exceptionally cheap, there's very few barriers to that pleasurable experience and that escape from discomfort. Whereas once upon a time, discomfort was just the way that everybody accepted life was and occasionally you had a good experience. But now in this era of convenience and social media, social media is, you know, it's engineered by psychological engineers in order for you to be able to be addicted to it for every little update and like to give you a little micro dopamine hit. And so then we end up like hamsters on the wheel of this dopamine addiction. We just want pleasure after pleasure after pleasure. And then that makes us far less resilient to not having a snack for four hours. You know, and we're in a situation where people can't 
go a, a normal period of time without putting something in that makes them feel good. And then from there, they make all of their food choices about pleasure rather than about nutrition and nourishment. Um, and, and that then evolves to, to be like, okay, what story do we attach to those pleasurable experiences? Well, I'm lonely. So I had some ice cream on the couch by myself. You know, I had a trauma as a child and every time I think about it, I don't want to think about it. So I go and get chocolate and pizza and push that down, numb myself out. And that's my story is that I had some really awful stuff happen as a kid. And I realized as a young adult working for a nutritional epigenetics company, having KFC and donuts at lunch, surrounded by dietitians and nutritionists that I was, I was like, I can't fit any more nutrition science in my head that's going to change my behavior. And I realized for myself was that childhood memories of trauma and pain and suffering that were coming up. And I didn't know this at the time. I was using sugar to push them back down, to numb myself out the same way an alcoholic would get really smashed to not have to think, you know? And so it's the same kind of thing is that, yeah, whether we do it in small amounts or large, obvious amounts with huge binges, it's about seeking that pleasure and and getting away from discomfort. Um, And I think as well, one of the challenges now is that there's so much awareness about personal development and how difficult trauma is and, and all of that kind of stuff that we're often living in this idea that our lives are just utter hell or that everything that happened to me is a bad thing. And there's awful things that happen to people every day. But my point is that now we're hyper-focused on this. And as a result, we're hyper-focused on escaping that pain. And so we end up with people that are binge eating all day, that are exceptionally obese, that have got all sorts of diseases. And that, yeah, that results in someone fronting up to a diet or a prescription about how to eat and not wanting to do it or only doing it for two weeks because they're not, they're no longer looking after any of those emotions. They're no longer getting the love from the chocolate. They're no longer getting the nurture from the wine. And then those things just build up because they're not being tended to. And then, of course, a couple of weeks later, they fall over, they go headfirst back into the person they used to be. And they'd rather be there because it's familiar and safe than be someone different with variables that are uncontrollable or unfamiliar. What's so interesting is, so I used to struggle with an eating disorder. And I used to think that my eating disorder stemmed from obviously some of its lack of nutrition or poor nutrition, because I didn't know what to eat to be healthy. And I wasn't eating any meat. And and then over time, I thought, oh, okay, so I have, an, I have developed an eating disorder because I wanted to be thin. And so it's a control mechanism. But then as I went through therapy, I realized I turned to food when I'm celebrating or I'm turning to food because I'm stressed or I didn't stand up for myself and out of anger, I'm pe- uh, penalizing myself by overindulging and then feeling sick and, and then going through these vicious cycles. But I had to learn all of that to then identify it and then to start the healing process. And now as we have a practice most people don't come to us for eating disorder stuff. So they say, just tell me what I need to eat. And so we do, but then they can't stick to it. And so then we start opening the layers of, have you ever had trauma? You know, and like you said, a lot of people are like, I already know that where I've already had a stressful life or I've had trauma, but I'm over it. Or it's been enough Mm -hmm. time or I went through therapy or I prayed. And, and so, but as we talk to them, it's very obvious that they're not healed yet. And so how do you start? It's one thing if you know, and like, okay, that's what I need to work on. But as an example, every time I share content about healing your relationship with food, um, any relational mindset stuff, it doesn't do well, because I think people want to just have that prescriptive, tell me what to eat, but it doesn't work. I see it with our clients. Like if that was the only thing we, we would have such a high success rate of everyone healing on, on our diet. And so how do you start people that are not even aware that a trauma or something is making them want to stay 
in that complacency space. Yeah, I think I often refer to myself as like the last resort and the programs that I run, because by the time you find me, you've done enough yo-yo dieting that you realize <laughs> the same thing I realized, which is that more more information, more <laughs> podcasts, more programs, it's not going to change anything. You already know about 300 different diet strategies because you've done them, right? And so often people have to get to a place where they're like, all right, I don't think it's about what to eat anymore. And so that's sort of when they, when once they're there, they're like, what? Eat? One of two things. They're either, what else could it be? And then we open that conversation, or they're like, I'm going to look at the thing that I've been ignoring for 30 years. And so, yeah, you sort of have to go through that, that cycle. And sometimes I get younger women, and I mostly work with women, but sometimes I might get like a 25 or a 28 year old. And she's like, oh, I listen to your podcast and it sounds great. And we, we have a bit of a chat about sort of all of the work. And she's like, oh, but I really just want the bikini body. And I'm like, ring me in 25 years. You'll get it. It'll make sense. Like, and, and that's the exact that culture that my clients were stuck in 25 years ago or, or that whole 25 years is the get thin, be socially acceptable, be able to be sexually validated by men and women and people, you know, don't be the, you know fat or anything like that or don't have curves or whatever it is. And they just get stuck in that for so long. And it's so defeatist because women have very different bodies. Like everyone's structured differently. Their hips are different. The fat distribution is different. And then we're like, the, you know, many people and men too, but women particularly are comparing themselves to like one idea and that just possesses them for so long, you know, and there's just such variation. And so I think one good thing to come out of sort of the personal development movement is a bit more acceptance around body types. We're possibly swinging too far to the other way, which is like, it's totally okay to be obese and, you know, tax on the healthcare system. But, but the point is that, you know, these people are either they've either done it enough times that they're sick of it and they're like, fine, Maddie, I've been listening to your podcast for five years. I'm ready. All right. I'm finally ready. Or they're like, they're, there must be something else. Can you help me figure out what it is? No, I love it. So when I was in my 20s and I was very severely suffering from an eating disorder, my brother said, if he, he just posed this question and I said, if I gained a pound, I'd rather die than live. And that's how disordered I was. And now at my age now with children and a happy marriage, there's, I feel like I would love to be a few pounds lighter, but I think my happy space is right here. And because there's so much more in my life now, instead of just being that thin number, it's not as big of a deal. Like, sure, I can maybe intermittent fast a little more. Maybe I don't eat the dairy or I don't snack as much, but it's just not a priority to me. And now I notice, even if I'm not hungry, when my younger days I go, I just won't eat because I'm listening to my body and I'm not hungry. But instead, I notice like I'll go and eat the protein shake or have more meat or something to make sure that I'm getting my protein needs for the day. And my priorities has shifted. And if I could just talk to my twenties of the 10 years, I was so disordered and I don't know how much muscle mass I lost during that time, how much more life is than just focusing on that one pound. But during that time, it was every weight I got, that was a new bar. And then, okay, just a little bit more, just until I fit into this shirt or just until um, I'm a certain size or a certain number. And it was never good enough. And that's when I realized something else is wrong, like something. Mm -hmm. And and obviously I suffered with not being good enough. And I think that's where that measurement was. I wanted to get lower, lower, lower. And at five, eight, at one point I was like one ten, and it was, whoa. I was on the thinner side and I didn't even look good. that. My guy friends would tell me you I think you need help. You look like a bobblehead because my head was way too big for my body. And I just took it as, oh my God, that's such a compliment. That means I'm thin. Like that's how sick I used to be. And so I get it, but it's just having people 
at what point is it worth being that sick? And I, for me, I was very sick and I landed in a, a very severe eating disorder facility, but I hope that people don't have to get to that level to get care because it's so freeing once you start really going through the healing process. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. And it gives me some more understanding as to, yeah, how, how much you really do get this and and probably far more than me with your personal experience. But one thing that I would, would add to that or con- as a continuation is that I think one of the, the terrifying things for social media and kids, but, but equally at, at all adults that are on social media is that we've gone from this reality of once I wanted to be thin in relation to my little social circle, which might be 20 people that I see on a regular basis. And now it's like, 1 million fitness influencers that are 20 years younger than me, that have bodies that are different than me, that are only showing the good parts of their life. And so, and I think this happens with kids in school too, is that instead of comparing themselves to the 30 people in their class or the couple of hundred in their school, again, they're, they're comparing themselves to the entire world. Um, and that that level of intimidation on body image and the idea of who you should be and who you decide to fixate on as your, I want a body like that, is is just so far removed that from, than what it was 30 years ago or 50 years ago when you weren't seeing all of those people, which isn't saying that it didn't happen. It's right. just that there was far less influence that was sort of really damaging because also when you look up to those people, there's another 7.2 million people that think that's a good idea as well. So you think everybody follows this person. Like, of course, I should want to be like this fitness influencer or this actor or whoever it is. And so I think that's really detrimental, which which means I think that part of the healing process and the recovery process needs to be about, and you, you spoke to this, which is having a happy, healthy life, which is not just healthy. Which And, and the idea of healthy with that mindset is obviously as thin as possible. Because the happy might mean the goal, say, say you come to me or come to you, Judy, and the goal is like lose 20 pounds, lose 10 kilos, whatever it is. And then you're at the gym, you're thinking that you're like, at the gym, I want to lose 20 pounds because I'm like working out. And when I'm cooking dinner, I want to do that. But then on Friday night, when I'm catching up with the girls or having, you know, the weekly pizza with the kids, I don't think about that goal at all. And it's really happy. It's a really important social interaction. I get a lot from it. So it's like, actually, maybe the goal should be 15 pounds because your happy, healthy life is there. You're not very happy at 20 pounds because you have to tell the kids no every Friday night that we're not doing that. And that causes arguments and it disrupts the family flow. And so I think that idea of a happy, healthy life really needs to be figured out because it gives value to other parts of the life experience that aren't just body image. So if I were to start with you and let's say I say, okay, I'm done this yo-yo dieting. Maybe I try to do paleo perfectly or carnivore perfectly. And every few days or a few weeks, then I fall off and I end up binging on whatever I want to eat. And I'm just so sick of this. And then I go through this whole vicious shame cycle of like, I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I can never make anything work and I'll never be thin or I'll never be happy or I'll never be blank. And then I come to you just out of, okay, fix me. Like I am ready to heal. I I don't want to live this life, this vicious cycle. How do you start working with me? So uh, the first step we do is basically change nothing and we review it. So we we document everything that happens in your normal day, not just food, but your feelings, the location that you eat, what's going on in your day. And we want to get a little diary of a couple of weeks where we can start identifying patterns, which is like, I always find myself swinging on the fridge door when after this meeting, after this meeting that happens every week, or I find myself walking down to the cafe at work every time I have to do that task that I really don't like doing, or I have a conversation with that person I don't like, or I ring my mother-in-law or whatever it is. And so we want to start identifying these patterns because 
once we know where the challenges are, then we can start being like, okay, what is underneath that? And then like some of the stuff you said, it might be in say the work task. Every time I do this task, I go to the cafe first to get a little sugar helper to get me through this task. And so it might be, I feel incompetent. I feel not good enough. In Like I don't have the knowledge and the skills. And so I need dopamine the whole time that I'm doing this in order to actually get through it because I don't believe that I'm you know able to do this task. And that sounds really simple, but other other ones could be every time I talk to my father or a family member, I am reminded of the sexual abuse that happened that I've never told anyone about, you know? And so, we can go like the spectrum is huge for the discomfort, the amount of discomfort that those things can experience. So, once we start finding that, we can understand the emotion or the emotional need that's underneath it. And then from there, there's two things. There's one, I call it kind of escapism and processing. So, the food is an escapism. And so, we still want to have a bunch of escapism options because at 3 p.m. in a meeting on Wednesday, you can't just like be like, stop everyone, I need to do an emotional regulation exercise, right? So, you still need a couple of options that help you escape in the moment that, are, that don't involve food but are really healthy alternatives. That might be breath work, depending on the situation. It might be a walk around the office. It might be a little one or two minute meditation, whatever it is. And And then we also need the actual processing, which is like all sorts of different cathartic ritualistic practices that might involve actually processing it, which m- might involve getting a psychologist involved, going on a mushroom healing journey, like whatever the tool is, we, we, we need to start moving towards them. And, and the reality is that it's not a 12-week thing. Plenty of people, you know, process stuff in 12 weeks, but it's probably for some people going to be like a five-year project, this like fixing yourself, healing yourself, learning to accept your reality, you know, wanting to be better for yourself because some of this stuff runs deep and it's complicated. Right. Do you see commonalities in people? I I know everyone is so different and I I know everyone's traumas or triggers or even habitudes that make people go and get snacks or junky foods. Um, I know it's all different, but have you seen any commonalities across people that you can generalize? So I think actually the most most common one that I see is actually wine. Yeah, I work with women between 40 and about 65 mostly. And interestingly, in the alcohol consumption data, that is the only demographic of people that are increasing their consumption of alcohol, everyone else reducing. And that's got a lot to do with the fact that we've got a digital world and less people are socializing. And so, that's the only group. And that's you know, there's lots of reasons we could talk about as to why that is, but that's usually the demographic of, you know, mums that are also full-time workers. So, they've got like full-time mums, they're full-time workers trying to do the career thing as well. Like, they're just juggling so much. And so, you know, there's there's even wine that's marketed to those mums as mummy juice. There's an actual brand of it. Like, yeah. And so, so wine is often, and that's sugar, pleasure, escapism, you know, from discomfort. But then second to that, not far away is wine and cheese and, you know, all of those things that come with it and, and really cheap snacks that are had in the car because calories you don't have in the, have in the car don't count, you know, and, and these all, all this little incidental consumption that you do whilst you're on the move because you just forget about it. And it's like, why didn't this diet work? And it's like, because the seven times I was distracted today, I actually also ate, but I've forgotten because I wasn't present at all. Um, so, so I think, yeah, wine and chocolate, easily the two of the biggest. That's interesting. So in the carnivore space, we say generally speaking that all carbohydrates, especially the way that I view carnivore is oftentimes an elimination diet, and you could either stick, stay to it, or you can start reintroducing certain foods as you choose. But the mm-hmm. one, what's so odd is, so what we have arguments in the space of, should we add salt or should we add seasonings or should we add coffee and teas? Because they're all, you know, they're not carnivore or meat-based. But the weird thing is, or the odd thing to me is everyone is okay with alcohol. 
And I always thought that is so odd. I would personally think that alcohol, because it hits your liver and then it can actually exacerbate if you have metabolic syndrome, but alcohol, one glass of wine in the narrative is that it's, it's okay. And then I also hear from a lot of our clients that it helps them to sleep, but then it doesn't really give you restorative sleep, but at least it kind of knocks you out. And then in the morning, they're so tired, then they hit coffee. And so I wonder if it's a lot of that dopamine effect again, that you're talking about. Yeah, I think so. And, and obviously, if people are needing to sedate themselves rather than be unconsciously asleep, there's obviously some sleep challenges going on there, which might have to do with the gut and the bacteria in the gut and the B5 production and B12, which is involved with sleep regulation. Vitamin D is heavily involved with sleep regulation, which most people are deficient. So I would say that there's also a sleep issue there that needs to be dealt with as well. Yeah, I think that's so great. So what are some other tips that you recommend maybe with mindset? Are there any habitudes? So for example, I'll tell some of our clients to do like a what I love list. So in, if in the moment they're stressed out and let's say they're uh, white knuckling it because they want to kind of go in a binge. And so instead I say, go through that list of like, what are the things you love because your animalistic brain is on and you can't really think of what do I love and what will give me enjoyment? So then I just make them go through that list. Do you have any habits or stuff that you recommend to your clients? Yeah. So I get people to develop. So if we think about the anatomy of a habit, which is loosely the cue or the trigger happens, then it goes to the routine, which is the thing you do. And then you get the reward, which is you feel good or you don't experience the discomfort. And so if we look at the middle bit, the routine, I, I call it a routine swap out list. So the, the brain is always going to seek that reward. Like it's still, and t- unless we really heal the wound or until we really heal the wound, that reward is always going to be seeked out by the brain. And so if we put some stuff in there, it pull out the old routine, which might be the walk to the cat cafe for a chocolate muffin and we put in something like a walk around the block and ring a friend you know for 10 minutes and have some connection which is going to give you some dopamine as well the idea is that over time we want to actually neutralize it not necessarily just be on another pendulum so if we're going between discomfort and pleasure all of the time and we just change the list of pleasure items to good things we're still training the body to be on this pe- this swing right so we want to ideally get to a place where we can like the tools that we use whether it be walk around the block or the breath work or anything are to bring us back to neutral rather than to bring us back to love and like dopamine because then we're just setting ourselves up for the swing back to discomfort and cortisol and adrenaline which doesn't mean that we don't want to move towards, you know, pleasurable things at different times because, you know, maybe you're going to a work di- dinner or and you really want to do like have something that's lovely, but not the thing that, you know, you would have done previously because it was really unhelpful or it began a binge. So, you might pick a, a food that is a little bit better, but not totally the same. But, but yeah, generally, I want people putting them their list of routine swap outs together and then starting to experiment. And then it's like that um, atomic habits thing of habit stacking as well, which is that some because I often say we need to find something that's of equal or greater value than the, the chocolate. And everybody says, Maddie, there's nothing that's equal or greater value to the chocolate. <laughs> and so we might have to habit stack. It might be do the walk, get a drink of like sparkling water. So you've got that sort of mouth pleasure experience and ring a friend. And then, you know, in 10 minutes, you've just forgotten about the craving altogether. And it's just kind of evaporated because, again, you've had those needs met of like some connection or some nurture or some some friendly interaction. Um, so, we're, we're trying to produce the same outcome. But over time, we want to get closer and closer to neutral because then ideally, if we're at neutral, then the trigger is no longer having control over us. No, that totally makes sense. It was interesting. I listened to Huberman talk a little bit about dopamine and he said that sometimes 
that when we are, let's say we're working on something really hard and we feel like I'm just going to take a break and you get up and you go do that little dopamine thing, or you start scrolling on Instagram and you get those dopamine hits that in that moment, it's sort of when your dopamine is dropping. And so your brain's like, I need a quick dopamine hit. So if you were to just muscle through, and so just having this awareness may help you to stay where you are and do the hard thing. And then when you actually go through the hard thing, you will have a more net positive dopamine that's like naturally earned. And so that maybe you don't have those pendulums as you're talking about, but that was also something I heard, which is really hard, right? Because when you're in the moment, it's easier to procrastinate or do something else than to actually do the task at hand. Yeah. And I think as well, like it's okay to have physical barriers. And what I mean by that is that I have an app called Freedom on my phone and on my laptop and on my TV. And the idea is that it blocks me out of all social media apps whenever for a, for a predicted time frame. So I can set it to one hour or 10 hours. I can choose the websites. And so even when I am on autopilot and I get up from my desk and I go and find my phone because I try and plug it in in another room and I just go automatically to look at the apps and it just pops up and says, you've asked for freedom for this app. It interrupts that automated dopamine seeking behavior. And I go, oh yeah. And I just, I just, I've got nothing else to do. So I just come back and sit at my desk, you know? And I think it's the same with food, like not having food in the house, or if you've got family members, I've encouraged people whose husbands won't get on board with what they're doing. Like just, we need to move the location of the trigger foods Mm -hmm. somewhere else. And often that ends up being the garage, because if it's not there, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind a little bit, not always, but a little bit. We're just trying to, we're trying to put interruptions into that thought process in, or at least distractions from, from what you would normally do. And so I think it's okay to have some physical barriers in there so that you're just like reminded, oh yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> it's not here. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I turn off all my notifications. So my phone never looks like there's any alerts other than phone and text for my children or husband. But it's so interesting because sometimes I still will go into Instagram. Like, I wonder if there's anything there, but maybe if I just put on that freedom, that's so interesting. I, I mean, you kind of alluded to this already, but how important is environment? How important is community? It's unfortunately so common where significant others aren't on the same page. And so that's a big struggle or the parents are trying to get better, but the children are still bringing the junk in the house. So how do we start if, if not everyone in the home is on the same page, how do we start supporting? You just mentioned the garage thing, but are there other things? That's a really good question. So after the first year and a half of running my programs, I added in a new module, which was about communication with family members and friends, because I had discovered that so many husbands were trying, were literally, they would, their partner would start with me. And then for whatever reason, all of a sudden, hubby's bringing home wine every night and, and he's bringing home donuts way more than he usually does. And like actively trying to sabotage their partners, which is one, awful, but Two is like obviously a lot about the people in our world, not just intimate partners, but friends that, you know, Friday night drinks that say, why aren't you drinking? Or like, oh, you're ordering gluten free again. Like, you know, whatever judgmental comment comes out of them. Obviously, you know, they're projecting their their judgment of themselves because they see someone trying to do better. And Australia is really bad for this. I think Australia was voted the worst uh, country in the world for tall poppy syndrome, which is that when you try and elevate yourself above the group that you're in, the group tears you back down, basically. Um, And so we have a really bad culture for that here in Australia. It might be different in the US because the US is usually championing each other a lot better, at least from the Australian perspective. And my experience over there is, is very similar too. But but this, yeah, just this idea that the people 
around us don't want us to disrupt the tribe because we're community, tribal, pack animals. And if somebody in the tribe thinks they're better than the tribe, the tribe feels judged. Right. And it's like, you think you're better than us? Like, do you? Well, off you go then. And the reason that people abandon their diets from that judgment is because as a pack animal, we have a fear of death because without the pack we are alone in the world and we we possibly will die like that's the that's the sort of core fundamental evolutionary fear that we're we're running from so we give up on the diet or we have the drink or we eat the food because it's like if the pack abandons me i don't have any other friends outside of this pack i don't have another family outside of this pack and so it's it's just better for me to conform and live in this body that i'm not wrapped with and don't feel great in and be accepted and loved by these people around me rather than be totally abandoned and rejected and so that's kind of the psychology of it because, and that's why the, I guess, joining group programs or joining a group, a, a gym classes where you get to know people um, is really important because you can go through. You don't necessarily have to leave the pack that you're in or the tribe that you're in or the family that you're in, but you've got a place that you can go and be accepted for your new values and where it's normal to want to do better for yourself and you're being championed. And so anyone that's done a health degree of any kind, at least in Australia, has done social determinants of health. And and that is the idea that it doesn't matter what you do with your diet and lifestyle, that the social impact will be far greater on your health outcomes than your genetic code. Like your, your postcode or your zip code is more impactful than your genetic code. Because for this exact reason, we're so psychologically drawn to behaving in a way that the tribe that we identify with accepts. Um, And so that's why I'm such a big advocate of group programs. And in addiction uh, medicine, there's so many studies that show group therapy is better than solo therapy. Because again, you are identifying with a new tribe of people that want to change, that want to be different. And I think that that's really, really important for being able to change. And then, of course, we need to learn to communicate with the people bringing us down if we actually want to keep them around. Um, And so I've got... In, in my program, we, we've got a little script that we get people to communicate with those people with, get them to practice it so that we get them on board and, you know, or at the very least, they stop caring, you know, rather than we have to have to defend ourselves every time we make a food choice. Yeah, it's interesting. The power to belong is so, like you said, it's so wired in us and that we just so will do things to belong. And even when we know sometimes it's not the right thing to do. And I actually see couples break up because one person gets quote unquote, their life together and they start losing weight. They start going to the gym and getting healthier, cleaning up their diet. And then the other person, there's a little bit of maybe they do things like they'll bring foods home that are temptations, or um, it's that they start showing a little bit more animosity. Maybe it could be jealousy because this person's getting their life together. And, and then eventually they split if they don't become eye to eye. And sometimes that's obviously not easy, especially if you have children and stuff, but it's, it is fascinating that we really function as a community. And when the community isn't like-minded and there's any sort of friction in it, then it becomes an issue. And it doesn't even have to be just about diet. It could be about anything, values that start changing and then the, the group starts to break. And so it makes sense a lot of what you're saying. Yeah, I think as well, when we speak community, we should also factor in the supermarkets and advertising and marketing, which is ridiculously unregulated. Because if every time we go out into the world to be a part of the community, we're inundated with all of this $1 for a kilo of chocolate marketing. And, you know, it's like, that's part of the ecosystem that we exist within. And so I think for for us consumers and those of us that can afford it, like going into the the marketplace and spending our money on things that we want, a community and a world that we want. And that might be regeneratively farmed produce or meat, or, you know, even in like, maybe you're in a food hall and spending your money, not at KFC and McDonald's, but like at the one little, a little bit more expensive, but, you know, 
restaurant where the chef goes to the local market to get all of the ingredients, you know, and and creating a, a world that we actually want to partake in rather than sort of these little health collectives that exist on the internet trying to escape all of the all of the marketing and the food stuff that's out there because it's it, it's a trillion dollar industry that's been right. running for a long time specifically designed to manipulate your behavior. <laughs> oh, totally, and they know exactly how to manipulate the dopamine too. If you were to get started with someone, would you, and let's say someone was eating really the Australian standard diet or the standard American diet, and you know, their diet is just so horrible that it's exact. And then maybe they're insulin resistant, overweight. And so it's exacerbating their mental fog and the ability to do anything is just also damaged by the food they're eating. Do you start with the mindset still, or do you start actually trying to change the diet? Yeah, I always start with the mindset. Okay. And that's, I mean, I have the occasional person, which is just strictly the nutrition piece. Um, but I would say 95% of people we come through that come through, we start with the mindset. And people start seeing results in that time anyway, which is, you know, the four, first four, six, 12 weeks, because they start self-identifying when I eat this, I have this symptom, you know, and then they start sort of just self-regulating a little more. And, you know, there's weight loss, there's improvements in gut health and blood sugar numbers before we even talk about nutrition, because oh. as we discussed at the beginning, they already know what to eat, you know, yeah. uh, gen- generally speaking, like it's like veggies are generally good. Meat is generally good. And so they start making better choices and then we get deep into the nutrition and then obviously, you know, a lot more changes. As we're closing, what are some successful tips that you would recommend or maybe even a success story of one of your clients? Yeah. So the one of the things that I always say, and people parrot it back to me all the time, including my friends, because I say it so often, but it's just one tweak a week. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like there's a lot to change. There's so much overwhelming information and people are in such chronic health situations that trying to do it all on Monday, it might work for a couple of weeks, but you know, you, we've got to, we've got to space it out. And I just think pick one thing and focus on that this week. And even with, when I do the nutrition with my clients, we just do breakfast for a couple of weeks. We don't even look at the other meals. Then we add lunch and we do that for a few weeks and then we do dinner and, you know, however many meals that that person is going to eat, but we just focus on doing the one thing before we move to the next one and successful clients. I mean, uh, yeah, there's lots of different stories of people that have been significantly overweight, diseased, whether it be diabetes uh, and people that were just totally attached to their sugar, couldn't stop eating chocolate all day, every day. Um, And one story that's coming to mind is a woman named Nicole. She had diabetes for 23 years and had been with the hospital dietitian for a long time, taking all of the advice. Nothing had ever really changed. A little bit of weight fluctuation over that time. And during the 12 weeks of being in the initial 12 weeks of being with myself, she went from diabetes type 2 to pre-diabetes with her blood sugar numbers. Um, And most people would assume instantly that it's like she got her food right. But actually for her, and there were was, there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of, it was a very confronting journey, but it was understanding why she was perpetually grazing and snacking all of all day, which had a lot to do with some really deep childhood stuff to do with her mum. Her, her mum had passed away. So there was guilt for feeling these feelings. And yeah, she was just really brave and really courageous. And that's kind of what you need to be in order to do this, which is why people don't want to do it until it's the last resort. And so her working through those issues and bringing to them to the surface and actually feeling the pain and the sadness and the depression rather than constantly trying to run from it or suppress it was actually the thing that allowed us to then shift some body weight, shift the blood sugar numbers, fix her gut a little bit. And so, and then that journey continued then for another couple of years. So, so yeah, that's one that's just popped to mind. No, that's, that's amazing. We sometimes have our clients take the ACE score. So the adverse childhood uh, experience score and the more points you have on that test, and it's only 10 questions, 
But the higher likelihood of obesity, metabolic syndrome, getting into drugs and alcohol and lots of other things. And so it's no matter how much people deny their childhood being hard, if if you have even parents fighting in front of you, a, a loss, a divorce, um, there's just very common things that you can see. I mean, even me, I have some points on that test and you see how it then affects the rest of your life. And it's so hard to have to focus on these really hurtful things that we like to just put under the rug, but they're the things that actually can free you once you just peel off that bandaid and actually look at the wound that's there because it really is freeing. And, but it's just so much hard work that people just would rather spend years and years and years numbing, but not being happy with the life that they live. So it's just, I think the work that you do is so important and focusing on that. And you really give me perspective of sometimes it's, okay, just let's not even think about the diet and let's focus on why are you even turning to food or why are you grazing? Why, when we only need to maybe eat two to three times a day, why are you eating 24 or I don't know, eight, 16 hours a day. And, and that may tell you so much and may naturally just have them then eventually eat a healthier diet. Because like you said, most people already know. Yeah. Well, and I, I love that you use the ACE study. I did a public speaking gig recently where I tied okay. the idea of the ACE study to yo-yo diet culture. Um, and I, I literally spoke to a woman yesterday on a call. She was inquiring about the program and, and she she said, I know what to do. I just, you know, I was this horrible stuff happened when I was a kid. And I said, unless you're willing to talk about that with me or a psychologist or somebody, we're just going to do the same thing. We're going to lose a bunch of weight and you're going to gain it again. So I love that you use that ACE study because it's so powerful. Yeah, it's people come to us for nutrition or some type of chronic illness, autoimmune. And then we're more like, okay, this is therapy. I know what you said on the paper <laughs> that you need help on, but I need to figure out what really do you need help on? And it's it's like a peeling an onion and little things and everyone is so different. And it's so fascinating. And that's why we started implementing. So we do personality tests of like, what motivates you? How are you wired? Do, do you like things specifically? Or do you want to generalize? Because are you going to rebel against me? Because we give you exact numbers. And it's so fascinating. And that's why I love, again, the work you do. And then just putting it out there like that. So we're, we tried a little lightly with the trauma stuff so far. But you know, maybe it's just we have to say it that way, where it's unless you're willing to talk about it with someone that you're willing to really finally heal that wound, you're never going to fully heal. And that's something so hard to hear, but I think it's so, so true. Yeah. Well, for, for me, I, I just really want to show up for people with authenticity. And what I mean by that is that if somebody gets on a sales call with me and I'm not the next step that they need, I'll just tell them. Mm -hmm. Like, I think abundantly there's enough people for us all to help, you know, from a business perspective. Oh. And I'm not, I'm not here to sell somebody that's not going to get a result or is not ready to do the work. So I'm just like, if now's not the time, that's fine. I'll ring you in six months, see where you're at, you know? And so that was the same for this woman yesterday. I, I we like stopped the call and I was like, this is not the time for you. I think you need to go and do some deep work with A, B and C practitioners first or happy to do it in conjunction with them. But but yeah, I think it's, it's good to be upfront with people because they need to be upfront with themselves and maybe they need us to model that. Yeah, no, I love it. So tell me a little bit about your services. Do you do one-on-one -on -one or do you do group coaching? And then where can people find you and all the work that you do? Yeah. So I, I do group coaching is the main thing. I have a small number of one-on-one -on -one clients because the rest of the time I'm hanging out with cool people like you, Judy, on podcasts, <laughs> trying to let people know about this amazing stuff. But yeah, people can find me on my show, the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast or at my website, which is maddielansdown.com. Okay. And can they find your group on Maddie Lansdown? 
Okay. Uh, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. And then social I was media. Say, social media, yes, that's what I was going to do next. So I just have one piece of social media, really, which is the Healthy Mums Collective. So I mostly work with women, mums, and grandmas. So anyone, anyone that's a woman, basically. So if you come to the Healthy Mums Collective, that's sort of the beginning of the emotional eating, sugar addiction uh, journey, which also involves weight loss, gut health, all of those types of things. So feel free to come and join there, answer the entry questions, and, and jump into that world. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'll put all of your information in the show notes, but this has been really helpful. I just think it helps me to even see things in a different light because as a nutritionist, we try to educate, but sometimes it's it's very obvious that it's not, okay, it's not really how many ounces of meat you need. It's something beyond that because sometimes it's even this, no, I know that this certain supplement or this certain herb or this certain food is going to make me sick, but the level that they are so sure about that it just feels like there's something else there and yeah. that, that maybe there's a trauma response. And so this is my control of the food I can eat. And it's, it's, it's always this uncovering of onions or layers of peeling back. So, but yeah, thank you again so much for joining me. It's, it was very insightful. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. And yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing how this episode goes. Okay. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. I know it's not the most lightest topic and that Sometimes we have to dig into areas that we don't really want to, and we'd prefer to just scroll or eat some junk food or numb in a way or escape in a way so that we don't have to think about the things that are hard or the things that we are turning to these dopamine or small dopamine hits. But the key is it is those exact things that we need to focus on to finally start healing. I shared a lot of my journey today, even though it's not always the most proud moments of my life, but I want you to know how far I've come in healing because I dealt with the hard things and I was sort of forced to when I was in a hospital, but I was forced to, and that has made all the difference in my life. And I hope that we all can get to a place where we are living the life we were meant to. All right, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your bodies and your minds because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.